So hope you can get a chance to speak with Krupa afterwards and send her off and encourage her on her way. Um, I need to give, before we open up our scripture this morning, want to give you a little bit of a family update uh, for us, for the Hoffman family. So just briefly here, you know this summer's been kind of wild and it's going to continue to be wild and, uh, for, the, for the Hoffman family, for our family. We were in Hawaii with this, um, this uh, big uh, reunion with my family uh, and then my, my wife and two daughters are just on their way home from Haiti right now. They were on a missions trip and uh, just had a phenomenal time. They survived. Um, I survived uh, with them being there, and uh, so we're going to hear more about that um, when they get home today. I'm excited. Uh, and then uh, a couple of other things. There's, there's been a dream of ours. Uh, my wife lived for France in, for uh, her eighth grade year, and it was very transformational for her. And I spent my junior year in college in Spain, and again, that was one of the most transformational years for me to be living in another culture, another uh, place. And so we wanted our kids to experience that, and so we've been praying about it and thinking about it. And uh, last year at Hume Lake at the camp, I um, connected with a French family, and uh, turns out they have a guest house in Strasbourg, France, uh, right near the German border, and they offered uh, for us to uh, use it for three and a half months uh, in the fall. And so, um, my wife and all of the kids, except for Elijah, will be, uh, and, I, and, and I won't be going, uh, you're stuck with me, but they're going to be going uh, in the end of August to France for three and a half months until December, and they'll be in the schools and studying and learning and sort of getting that cultural immersion part of their education. So we're very excited about how that's worked out, and God just provided a wonderful open door for that to happen. And then at the same time, it gets even crazier. Uh, at the same time, we had a, a, an extremely generous person uh, from afar, not connected with this church, but connected with the church uh, you know, large scale, um, uh, give us uh, a significant uh, amount of money and said to us, we want to help you with your housing. And um, so we prayed about what that would look like. And, um, and the timing just works out such that while they're gone in France, we are going to do some work on our house. So I actually have a picture of our house. Um, I'm not kidding here. Um, our house, this is San Pablo Avenue right here. Uh, that's Cornell School. Um, I think that's the Vines house right over there, maybe. Um, and this is uh, Solano Avenue. It goes like, this is Berkeley. This is the old hotel that burned down. Um, and then this is 833 Madison. Um, this is taken from Albany Hill. Uh, and so uh, this was uh, taken in 1911. So our house is 105 years old almost. And... Um, you know, the foundation needs a little work and uh, a million other things as well. And so while they're in France, um, we are going to be doing this kind of work on here. So I'm going to stay here to do that, and uh, Elijah's going to help me. My son, who's 18, going to help me with that. And we're not going to do it all, but we're going to help out with it. Uh, and so we're going to move in, Elijah and I, with the Gills, my wife's in-laws, and we'll be there for, those, for that season while they're in France and we're working on the house. So I felt like I needed to just kind of put that out there because you're going to see the Hoffmans moving and going back and forth and there's going to be craziness and um, wanted to explain that a little bit. And I thought today was a good day to do it because housing is actually a great way to introduce this text that we're talking about. So would you open to 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, if you have, don't have a Bible, uh, let us know and we'll pass one to you. Um, and if uh, you're using that Bible, it's on page 706, 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, 
page 706. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Make sure you get one. Now, fixing an old house kind of relates to this text, um, because as you get into it, you realize, and we're partway into the process here, you find more and more things that are broken, especially when it's 105 years old, uh, it's been around for a while, Um, you find more and more uh, that's wrong, and truly fixing it means tearing out more than you thought, right, and 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 sort of stripping it back, and now, at the end, it's going to be the same house, but it's going to be different, it's going to be the same, but different, And when we get into this text this morning, we see that God has a similar approach to this fallen, broken, decayed world. He is going to rip out all that's broken and wrong and unrighteous and and not the way it was intended to be. And we know some of what that is, but we don't really know in depth all that's broken and wrong with our world. We, we know uh, kind of some of the systems that are wrong, but we don't know everything. Uh, we see what people do, but we don't see everything that people, people do that harm others. And so God's going to get in there and he's going to rip out all that's broken, all the causes of sin, all the unrighteousness in our world, and he's going to redeem it. And it's going to be the same, but different. It's going to be renewed. And he talks about this, Peter does, as the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth will come. And, and, and God will have bring about this transformation. And it will be, we'll see at the end of this text, a place where righteousness dwells. And you may think, well, that's kind of a strange way to put it. But just, just think about this. If, if we were to get all of the sin and the evil in this world out of this world, what would you be left with? All the things that are beautiful and precious and wonderful and the things that bring us joy, the things that inspire awe in us, all of those things will be left to God's creation. And it will be tremendous. It will be a place where righteousness dwells. Now, this is the teaching that goes way back into the Old Testament. It reaches roots into the Old Testament. And Peter's writing to the church after the time of Jesus, and there have been some false teachers present in the community, and they're teaching things that are contrary to that whole old history that goes from the Old Testament through Jesus. And one of the things that they're teaching... Is, is around this idea of the new heaven and new earth because of their what seems to be this Epicurean influence where they didn't believe in an afterlife. These teachers are denying that there will come a new heaven and a new earth. And they're teaching this to the Christians and the others, the people who are present. And, and, and these false teachers are sort of sharing this uh, teaching and Peter finds it disastrous because this is a key teaching in the Christian faith that shapes how we think about the future, how we think about God, and how we think about ourselves. And so Peter's writing in chapter 3 specifically to remind these Christians of the truth of the new heaven and the new earth and of the implications of that truth for our lives today. So look with me in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Peter says... This now is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. He calls them dear friends, beloved, over and over again. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, referring to these false teachers, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming, referring to Christ? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So the world was created, first of all, by the word of God. And how far we go at times to, to write God out of the creation story, right? How far we go. But the revelation, the, the revealing is, is that God created the world. And then in the story of Noah, there was the deluge that came and judgment came and God renewed the world again on the other side of that judgment. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, referring to the, the stars, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want us to think on this phrase this morning. The heavenly vision changes us. It changes us. The heavenly vision changes us. And there's three ways at least three ways from this text that it changes us. First of all, we say this, the heavenly vision changes us because it makes us patient. The false teachers that came in to the church that Peter's writing to were impatient ultimately. They were seeking fulfillment in things that were self-centered and unhealthy in the wrong kinds of things. And so we talked about this last week. They were turning this beautiful celebration of the Lord's table into sort of a a drunken party. And so they were seeking fulfillment in their revelry and their feasting instead of the honoring of Christ that was meant to be. They, They, in the midst of that, appear to have had eyes for the women in the church. So these false teachers came in and they had eyes for the married women in the church pursuing them in adultery. So again, impatient, seeking to fulfill their own longings in their own way. 
And Peter mentions their greed. So they were somehow or other trying to wrangle out of these Christians the finances for their own self-support and needs. Now, a root cause of, of their false teaching is this denial of Christ's return. Because they have no vision for a day in which all of their longings and desires will be fulfilled. And so they impatiently seek to fulfill them in their own way right now. And this is a temptation, if we're honest, that is for all of us there. Much of the unhealthy things that we engage in and that we do are because ultimately we're being impatient with God. We want to be fulfilled right now. And the heavenly vision is not grand enough in our minds. It hasn't filled our souls to to the extent that that we're willing to wait for God's fulfillment in His way and in His timing. And in our impatience, we pursue things that are unhealthy and harmful, and we find it difficult to endure the hardship of absence, which is so much a part of this life, right? So we seek fulfillment in substances, in, in food and drink like these false teachers, or, or these days it might be drugs, it might be painkillers, it, it might be some other substance that we pursue to find fulfillment in. Or like them, we, we, we pursue fulfillment in some sort of uh, uh, ungodly sexual practice. And so um, like these, these uh, false teachers were pursuing the wives of others uh, in adultery. Um, to find fulfillment for themselves. And, and we turn sometimes to the computer and flip on the pornography because we're being impatient. We can't wait for God to bring the fulfillment that we deeply long for. Um, we surround ourselves with the comforts um, to the point of not taking risks anymore for the Lord. right? Not dying to self because we want to be taken care of. And on some level, it's, it's this deep-seated impatience. We can't wait for God to bring fulfillment, and so we're seeking fulfillment in our own strength, in our own ways. But it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. See that? Not in the big picture. Look at verse 8 with me. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. And when we get our minds into thoughts of eternity, and the new heaven and the new earth, and the extent of it, suddenly the difficulty and the suffering and the lack of fulfillment that so much characterizes this life gets right-sized. Gets right-sized. Because with God, we are called to think in terms of eternity. Because we will live on and on and in the presence of God 
in the new heaven and new earth where all desires will be met and fulfilled. And if we can get our minds leaning into that vision, we can endure the lack of fulfillment and the suffering and the hard things of this life. Verse 13. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in in which righteousness dwells. And you wake up in the morning and you see that you feel this deep, deep longing for things to be different in your life, for things to be different in your relationships, for things to be different in the world around you. That's normal. That's normal. And, and you will keep waiting because all of those longings will never be fulfilled until Jesus returns. And when he does, they will be filled to an extent that we can only begin to imagine. Right now, and it's that vision. And so, how do you trust in that vision? How do you lean into that vision? And again, Peter is our guide here. Um, And I said this, we talked about this last week. You can't merely rely on reason to get there. Reason is a wonderful tool for knowing things. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we add a whole nother tool to our toolbox of how do you know? How do you know things in this life? And, and, and not only do we apply reason to life, but we also seek revelation from God. And that's what Peter is saying in the very beginning of chapter 3. He says, this now is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so he's saying, not only do we know through thought and reason, but we know because God has spoken into this earth, this world, into the community of humans. He's spoken through Jesus Christ, and the prophets testify to Jesus Christ. And Jesus told us that he was going to be coming back, and this is the message that we're to lean into. It's a message of revelation. And so if we rely merely on our reason to come to the strong conclusion that there is this heavenly vision, we will come up short. But if we open the category in our minds that some of the way you know is by revelation and by faith, we trust that God has revealed His truth to us through the prophets and through Jesus and then through the scriptures that we have, then we have a whole, it's a whole other story. Because we're told, verse 13, according to His promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we can get that lodged in our brains. This idea of the new heaven and the new earth. Everything we love about this world and nothing we hate about it. If we can get that vision lodged into our minds, then we're going to find the strength to endure the hard parts of life and the lack of fulfillment that so characterizes our existence. And it touches every single life. Sometimes we look at that person and we go, if I just had what they had, I'd be fulfilled. No, not true. And then you get that thing that they have and you realize, oh, I'm still not fulfilled. This is part of life. So if we can get this heavenly vision lodged into our brains and seeping into our souls and and expressing itself in our our actions, then then it's going to give us the strength to endure 
the waiting that so characterizes this life. And not only that, it goes a step further. It's going to give us the strength not just to endure, but actually then on top of that to take risks for the Lord, which is what he's called us to do. What it means to follow Jesus Christ is to die to self, to be willing to take up our cross so that we can be followers of Christ in the world, bringing blessing to others. And so we can go to Southeast Asia, right? Uh, and, and, and expose ourselves to difficulty and uncomfortable life because we've got the heavenly vision of, of, of the future and we can endure whatever lack of fulfillment might be characteristic of our lives in this moment. So it makes us courageous. Probably too silly but of a story, but I have a kitchen drawer that um, doesn't work. And... Um, it's driven me crazy over the last while. Um, the silverware, every time you want to get the silverware out, it, it's, it gets out crooked, and sometimes it falls down on your feet. And you, then other times you can't get it out, you've got to pry it open. And a uh, funny thing happened when we decided that we were going to actually be working on the house. My attitude towards that silverware changed completely. Now every time I have to wrestle to get that thing open, every time I'm rushing and I, I can't get a fork, to eat my food, I think to myself, oh, it'll, it's going to get fixed, right? It's going to get fixed. That's what the heavenly vision does. It, it, it's going to be redeemed. We can deal with the brokenness and the fallenness of this world because it's going to get fixed. All right. So first of all, about the heavenly vision is it makes us patient. Second of all, it makes us righteous. This is this is amazing. Righteousness has to do with the design of something, right? Um, for a house to be made in a way that's true to the plans, you could say, is, a, is, is righteous in, in, in that kind of a sense. It's, it's made true to what it was intended to be. And if it's off, then it's not what it was supposed to be. And in the same way, we as human beings were made to live in a certain way. God designed us to live a, in a certain way. And whenever we're off of that, we are unrighteous. And when we're living in our design, we are righteous. And, and God's going to create a new heaven, new earth, where everything works according exactly according to his design. Now, we can't make ourselves righteous. That's the teaching, the revelation of Jesus is that we can't make ourselves righteous because sin is too deeply embedded in who we are ever since the fall. Sin is deeply embedded in who we are. And so try as we might to do the right thing, we find ourselves veering and, and not living according to God's design over and over again. And so we need the help from the outside to become righteous. And so Jesus came and, and, and it, I think part of the, way, the reason that this is hard for us to grasp sometimes mentally is because God did this in the backwards way. He did it in the loving way. So rather than making us righteous first, Jesus took into himself all the punishment of sin and, and, and God, the Father, on the basis of Jesus' work on the cross, his atoning sacrifice, declared that we're righteous if we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then on the heels of that, God goes to work in the process we call sanctification to help us to grow into that righteousness. Now, we wouldn't do that way. We wouldn't do it that way, right? We would say, okay, you become righteous and then I'll call you righteous. But God leads the grace way, the other way. He says, I'm going to call you righteous and make you righteous in Christ. And then I'm going to come alongside you 
and help you to grow into the design that I originally intended for you, the way I intended you to live. So we're in this process of sanctification. And here's the point. The the new heaven and the vision of the new heaven and the new earth actually, and the awareness of it, actually speeds along the process of sanctification. It speeds along the process of our growing in to the righteousness that God has already given to us. So verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, so since this this whole radical transformation of the world is going to take place, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is sort of the worst rhetorical question anybody's ever asked. Um, because he answers it as immediately, right after he says it. What sort of people ought you to be uh, in lives of holiness and, and, and godliness? So, um, what will you have done, son, when I get home cleaning your room and vacuuming the house and doing the dishes? Right? He's already given the answer right in there. What ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Did you catch that? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So, My wife is in Haiti with our two daughters in a missions trip this week. And about Tuesday of this week, I looked at the kitchen and I thought, oh boy, if it continues in this direction, you know, it's going to be really bad by the time she gets home. And I thought, well, we instituted the kitchen redemption plan, which we have been executing daily to keep it from getting too far gone. Um, And and, and so we've been been doing that. And why do we do that? I asked her, why do we do that? Because I'm just scared that when she comes home and it's a mess... She's going to be mad. Mm, I could probably handle that, right? Um, she's nice, right? Um, so what is it? What's the motive? And, 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 you know, she's not going to leave me if she comes home, right? We're not in a contractual relationship. We're in a covenant marriage where even if the kitchen is dirty, she's obligated to stay with me, right? Because we're in this covenant marriage. And so that's not the key motivation. The key motivation uh, that crops up in me is, is that when she... When she walks through that door, I want to bless her and not have her walk into a house that's a mess. And when I come home from a trip, she does the same for me. We try to try to love each other in that way, right? So the question isn't so much, um, what's God going to do to me if I don't live holy and godly life? It's, how can I love God in the way that I pursue the life he designed me to live? So that when he comes back and he walks through that door of this world, you know, I'm prepared. I've welcomed him, not just with words, but with my actions and, and my life. And I, there's something about our relationship with Jesus that moves into a whole new category of sweetness. When we start to say, you know what, I just want to please you, Lord, in the way that I live. Now, I don't even understand what you're asking me to do. But I'm just going to do it because I love you. When you wake up in the morning and you, you say your first thought is, Jesus, what do you want from me today? You know, It's a whole new category of sweetness where, where this relationship goes on another level and, and it mirrors the best marriage or the best relationship that's not a matter of avoiding fear, but of loving one another. And in Christ, we can have that relationship with the Father, but, but he takes it a step further. God takes it a step further. Not only is it, is it, is it part of uh, uh, causing us out of love to pursue holiness and godliness, but 
he says that we actually hasten the coming of the day of God by our pursuit of holiness and godliness. Now, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? By our holiness and godliness and our pursuit, however faltering our steps, we hasten the coming of Christ. We get to, in other words, we get to play a part in the coming, the return of Christ. And so it's a very simple thing. Are you frustrated? Are you frustrated that Jesus hasn't come? Well, here's your answer. Pursue holiness and godliness. Because to the extent that we as followers pursue holiness and godliness together and individually and with the church collectively around the world, we hasten the return of Christ. Acts 3.19, I won't go there now, but if you want to look it up later, says, gives us a similar point. Acts 3.19, that as we pursue godliness, God returns. Now, the vision give, makes us patient, it makes us righteous, and then lastly, the heavenly vision focuses us, focuses us on what matters most. That's another teaching in this text. God is not delaying coming back. Jesus is not delaying returning for personal convenience. He didn't stop off at the grocery store to get milk and ended up filling his cart with a hundred things, right? Like we do to each other sometimes. Um, he's not delaying for personal convenience. The, it says that it's, everything's ready. You know, the storehouses of destruction are filled to the gills already. God is sort of hovering over the red button with his finger, Right? ready to push it at any moment. He will come like a thief in the night. Okay? So it's all ready. He's not just delaying. He's not just delaying because he wants to. He's delaying for what is probably one of the most beautiful verses you could read. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And listen to this. Think about this. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, in the movie, they added a scene that's not in the book, but I'm going to tell you it anyway, it's a good scene. Uh, Prince Caspian, with his army, is raiding the castle of Miraz, who is the bad guy in the story. And they go into the side the keep, and Prince Caspian has a particular job to do in this raid, but he gets distracted because he has this sort of personal vendetta and pulls him away from what he's supposed to be doing. And as a result, the entire force, the army, gets trapped inside of the keep. And they're wanting to escape. And the gate is starting to close. And they're going to be trapped like, like sitting ducks inside the keep. And this minotaur, which is the, the beast that has like legs of a elk or something and stands on two legs and huge body, runs under the gate and steps up like this and holds it. And the whole, the whole body is trembling. I know I don't look like a minotaur. Um, uh, the whole body is trembling under the pressure of the gate as it comes down. And and the, the, the forces, in the army in the keep, they're trying to escape and escape, but he can only hold it so long. 
And finally, the weight of the gate just comes crashing down on top of him, and he ends up flattened like this under the gate, and the gate is slammed shut, and half of the army has made it out, and you look through the grate of the gate, and you see the rest of the army on the inside, and you know that it's over. And all this happened because Prince Caspian got distracted from his duty and his role. And I'm not sure, when I look at my own self, and and I'll speak to myself first, I'm not sure that we are capturing the urgency of the situation in our world. The gate won't remain open forever. And the only reason we continue on like this is because the gate is being held open. And I'm not sure we're understanding the heart of God that in this. There, there's the two things. Verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's the one piece. The gate is, is going to close and they're going to be in the keep and there's going to be destruction and it's going to be terrible. And at the same time, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And you and I, we are the bridge to that repentance on some level because we've been called to be the proclaimers of the faith, to share the good news of the gospel, that idea that you can be made righteous in Jesus Christ and therefore fit for the place where righteousness dwells. We're the ones who are supposed to be proclaiming that message. That's what we've been called to. And I confess my lack of urgency in the midst of that. And maybe we can all confess our lack of urgency. We have not captured the heart of God. We have not captured the circumstance. We're losing our focus. But when we get our eyes on the new heaven and the new earth, we are refocused on what matters most. This short, temporary life existence is going to be passing away and it will unfold into an eternity of glory and beauty. And we want as many people to get under the gate before it slams shut. We've been practicing this discipline as a staff multiple times throughout the month. We gather together and in our prayer, we share what we're calling blue ribbon stories. And that has to do with this process of sharing the gospel, something to trigger our minds on how we share the gospel. We, We pray for people. We ask people about their lives genuinely, sincerely. We seek ways to bless others when we learn about them and we see Uh, what their needs are, we we discover that maybe God has given us resources to bless that person. And then as the relationship grows, we look for opportunities to share how God has worked in our lives. And then uh, as the Lord leads, we, we look for opportunity to tell people about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And to share stories of those stories is to come together and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a story of some somebody came to faith or anything so grand even as that. It's just, you know, I had a great conversation with somebody this week 
or I, 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 I was able to bless somebody this week, or I was able to share my story with somebody this week. And we, we sit around and we tell those stories, and then we pray for those people. And i got to tell you, it's changing my heart. That We've been doing this for months, and it's changing my heart because I'm moving through life with a little bit more sense of urgency about this whole coming to faith and, and the fact that, the, the, that God doesn't want anybody to perish, but that there is a day of judgment. It's just a little bit more in the forefront of my, my mind, and so I'm talking to people in different ways. I'm praying in different ways. I'm looking for opportunities in different ways, and I want to invite us as a church, and I know some of you are already doing this, I want to invite us into this journey more deeply because it is urgent, and because of God's heart, I want to invite us into, to take this journey seriously, to stay focused because we're so distracted by things that don't matter in an eternal sense. So who is it that you can gather with to share stories so that you can encourage one another and keep in the forefront of your mind the main task that we've been called to, which is to share this good news with others? Can you do this in your family when you, when you sit down at dinner at night, can you say, hey, let's tell stories of who we talked to today and, and let's pray for those people. Can you, when you gather in your, your home groups and you have that prayer time at the end or some of you do at the beginning, can you regularly say, let's share stories about the people in our lives that we love but who don't know Christ and let's pray for them. See, when you do that, it just starts to rise in your consciousness, in your mind, in your soul, and it gets undergirded with prayer, and you encourage one another, and when you're frustrated, you get to celebrate the joy of somebody else's story, and it just makes us as a community more on mission. Keeps us focused on what matters most. So the heavenly vision changes us, makes us patient, makes us righteous. It focuses us on what matters most. Lord, would you influence us with the heavenly vision. Change us and transform us. We pray for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.